Howdy. Everyone good? Good morning. Good afternoon. The Bible says is probably a very broad way to begin a sentence. And people have abused this first half of a sentence to get whatever they want, to do whatever they want. There's many people throughout world history that have said the Bible says, and this is why it's okay to have slaves. The Bible says this, so it's okay for me to do X, Y, Z. One of my influential uh, spiritual fathers for my life, he, his name is Father Anthony. He serves in Washington, D.C. And this was maybe eight years ago. He was at, at, the, he was at the airport. And somebody came up to him, just random, because he kind of sticks out the way he's dressed. And he said, does God want to give me the desires of my heart? He's like, yeah. And the lady said, yeah, because the Bible says, Jesus says, and I'm here to give you the desires of your heart. So, so Father Anthony said, yeah. She's like, okay, perfect. Because I'm, 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 I'm planning to kill my boyfriend because he cheated on me, and, he, and that's the desire of my heart. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. And, it, it, and this was a legit story that happened. And people can use and abuse whatever they want, and they begin by saying, the Bible says. But the reality is, sometimes we just say the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and we do not realize that the Bible is a library of manuscripts, a collection of books that have been put together over centuries. But sometimes when we just say it, we just assume everyone in the audience understands that this is an authoritative collection of documents, which is we cannot assume that. We cannot assume that everyone has that worldview. But it's better for us to give an elaboration, give context of what is in the Bible. What are, what are these collection of manuscripts and why was it put together and what does this author say? Because as you saw in that video, there's so many different styles of writing that are embedded in so much different culture and language and audience. There's so many things that you have to keep in mind when reading it, just as you would do with any, any other type of writing. You need to assess who's writing it, who's the audience, what's the, the motive or the agenda of how someone is writing. But how the Bible came together, and as I mentioned over the past few weeks, the Bible does not begin with in the beginning. That's not where the Bible begins. The spark of the Christian worldview was a new definition to death. What sparked the movement of this cultish secret group, which was kind of given this label of being called the way. These people who were like Jewish converts to following Jesus. This, this very small group within the first few decades of Christianity, what sparked this movement which radicalized world history, the spark of it, was a new definition to death because with their own eyeballs, they saw an empty tomb. Until today, there's still an empty tomb because death has been overcome. This is what sparked a movement to start writing so many things in one direction and look back at Jewish world history and connect the two because they were able to put a thread together. And what threaded all these ancient manuscripts and documents and records and letters and poetry, what threaded all of that together is a new definition to death which came through the God-man. This is what gave a new definition. So I'm not going to ask this question because I don't remember it myself. Last time you went to a library, maybe you're better than me. Anyone went to the library the past five years? I feel like I should. Yeah, I need to be better. But anyway, in a library, by the way, this is super random. I just, I've been paying at Audible for audiobooks. I didn't know you can get free audiobooks at the library. Did you guys know that? So it, if, you get, if you didn't get anything out of today's talk, at least you know you don't have to pay for Audible if you're like me. You can get free ebooks. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, the library. So just that, if you don't understand one book in the library, you don't just say, I don't understand this, close it, and you walk out. You don't do that. There is one book in the library which you do not understand, 
but probably if you walk 10 feet the other way, you'll find another book that will help explain that first book that you looked at, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the essence of a library, right? Something might be confusing in one genre, but you can look at a different book to help explain that one thing that you do not understand. In the same way, the Bible is a collection of books. It is a library. So one thing kind of make, does make sense, and we kind of take it, we hijack it, and we utilize it to explain what we want. Or I, I want to do this, and I'm going to find a Bible verse to justify what I want to do. I mean, this is why there's tens of thousands of different versions of Christianity. Why? Because someone has taken a verse and decorated it in a different way, gave a new meaning to it, and says, we need to launch a brand new church because here is a brand new meaning to this verse. But for us, for the first century Christian worldview, it is holistic. It's us looking at the totality of these collection of manuscripts, which we call the B-I-B-L-E, and connecting it with the tradition of, that existed in the first few decades, in the first few hundred years, of the church. This man right here, I love very much. This, well, two of them, I should say. One would be Jesus, right? And the other one that's kind of bowing toward him. Does anybody know who that is? Yeah, St. John. So I love his style of writing. He wrote a uh, very clever way. He titled three letters that he wrote to early Christians. He gave a very attractive name. He titled them First John, Second John, and Third John. And he also wrote a record of being a first eyewitness of Jesus, and he calls that gospel, uh, and that's the gospel according to St. John. We, that's what we call it now. I don't know why I put this because I want to look into it myself more. He always labeled himself, writing from his first, first eyewitness account of everything he experienced with Jesus, he titled himself, not John, not me, he said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I feel like he wanted to just stick it to Peter and Nathaniel and the other disciples, but he always described himself, oh, and then Jesus was talking to the one whom he loved and the rest of the disciples. That's the way he talks. But anyway, this collection of John writing everything he experienced, this was written around the year 90 AD, and I want to share with you one aspect of that he wrote. So the style of how St. John writes, he highlights seven encounters and seven supernatural events he experienced as a first eyewitness with Jesus, his rabbi, which eventually ended up becoming his savior. So he, record, he records in, in, in 21 chapters, wait, he didn't write in chapters, but I'm just saying that's how we organize it now, the past 500 years, but he's just kind of just going on, on, and on everything he experienced. So he's basically organizing it into seven encounters or events. And I want to share with you, I promise you, this really hits home to me. This really hits home to me. This encounter, this dialogue, how much it impacted the Christian worldview of how Jesus interacted with this woman. So I want to start with you. And I'm going to share with you commentary from the early church within the first couple hundred years. I'm paraphrasing their commentary, but I'm going to share with you this encounter. This first eyewitness, John records this. Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Just be, I, I want you to understand, the author is very intentional of every word he's using. Every word is very intentional because he knows that this document could last for generations and for the rest of mankind. So he's wanting to be very intentional to draw his audience to something more. He's not just wanting to record historical events. He's wanting to prick their conscience. He's wanting to elevate this text into something that will penetrate to their soul. So he's saying Jesus left Judea, which is in the south, and he needed to go uh, again to Galilee. So he would need to go. But, he, but he, St. John is saying that he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go. So some, like, here, here, let me, bear with me on a map. Judea, Galilee, Samaria. There is a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus 
And Josephus wrote down that many Jewish Pharisees didn't want to go anywhere near Samaria because those are kind of like, you know, just people you don't hang out with. Like, there's, you don't know. They're just a no-no. So most people, what Josephus writes down, would go around. They would go from Judea to Galilee, but they would go around. But then St. John writes that, that my rabbi needed to go through Samaria. So he's being intentional by saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria, which was countercultural for this time. For Jesus, it makes a sense for you and me. Like, just instead of just save some time, just you probably could save two weeks of your life. Just go right through there. But St. John is uh, John's recording that Jesus, my Savior, had to go through. He needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. St. John's is saying, this is history, this is facts, you can fact check me, I'm giving you some geographical evidence for you to know that I'm not just sharing like some fairy tale making this up, here is the geographical evidence of what I'm talking about. So this place really does exist, uh, and I'll show you a very super cute picture of this place right here, here is a, a lovely couple right here. This is me shaving um, uh, before preset, and this is my wife, I, sorry the wall it doesn't come out that well, but anyway. This is Jacob's well, so this is what um, history tells us. Um, of the place where this event has occurred, all right? Nobody said awe or anything? Or? <laughs> good, good. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Again, more details, not just nonsense details, but he's trying to point out something. Jesus is tired. He's physically tired, and he's coming to the well in the middle of the day. And that is a no-no, just for us to understand Jewish culture. Nobody goes to the well in the middle of the day. That, that's like, no one walks around Egypt at 2 p.m., probably, I'm assuming. It's like scorching hot. Like, it's that, you just don't do that. You maximize the morning and you maximize the evening. But you don't go out in the middle of the day. If you need water, you get in the morning before it gets super hot, or you go in the evening, like when it's cooler. But you don't go in the middle of the day. But Jesus, being physically exhausted, he's coming uh, about the sixth hour in the middle of the day. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, hey, do you mind, you mind grab me a drink? I'm a thirst. To us understand this initial conversation, this blew this woman's mind that for, for Jesus to say, hey, you, you mind if we grab some coffee together? Do you mind if you give me some water? This was so countercultural. It's hard for us in this day and age for us to understand how weird that is and how it was such a red flag for so many reasons. And understandably, this woman responds understandably in the most appropriate way for a, not just a man, a Jewish man, to come alone to talk to this woman. St. John adds this, uh, he's adding these facts. For his disciples, Jesus' disciples, including me, John, had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, see how this woman responds to this initial conversation where Jesus says, hey, how you doing? You might grab me some water. See how she responds. How is it that you, you being a Jew, not just a Jew, but you're asking me, a woman, for a drink, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Hello, what are you doing? Boy, girl, Jew, you know, Jew, you know this is a no-no. Like, uh, we're alone. You need to get out of here. Take your water, get out. Like, there's a, probably another well. This was a big no-no. How many of us, and my question for you and me is this, what artificial barriers do you suppress to yourself 
This woman put this barrier because culture says this, and she put this barrier, which prevented her to open up to this man because she had this thing. Well, culture says this. Like everyone else, this is a no. I don't know why, but you shouldn't be doing this. And she put up this artificial barrier that prevented her from participating or being engaged in the fullness of life. How many of us put up an artificial barrier that suppress us? Let me just share a couple examples in which you and I do. I'm busy. I'm busy right now. It's a busy time right now. Why you do not invest in your marriage? It's busy. Why are you not engaged with your kids? It's a busy time. Why aren't you spending time with God? It's a busy time. Why aren't you going to church? It's just a busy time. It'll be over soon. I'm sure by the spring will be better. It's just a busy time. By the summer will be fine. It's a busy time. This is an artificial barrier. Why aren't you really taking serious to, to, to cope with, with the issue that has happened or find healing from the trauma? It's a busy time. It's a busy time. We begin to justify ourselves. This ends up becoming an artificial barrier. Or maybe an artificial barrier that you put. Well, the reason why I act like this is because she did this or he did that. You begin to put the blame on someone else. This becomes your artificial barrier. Why aren't you finding healing for yourself? Oh, it's because of what he said. It's because of what she said. And you overreact and you justify it by blaming someone else. It's because of what he did in the past. It's because of how he, she disrespects me. And you begin to justify it. And that becomes your artificial barrier, preventing you from moving forward toward healing. Another artificial barrier. You know what? That might work for you, but th th that's not my truth. That, 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 that's your truth, but my truth is different. That's also an artificial barrier. And that sounds so attractive. I want you to understand. I reiterate this so many times for us to understand a post-Christian America. That what seems so attractive is for you to say your truth and for me to say my truth. I, I don't have a major in English. I know nothing of English. I, okay. But the word truth is, like, is a constant. Like that, that doesn't evolve. Like this is black, sky blue. That, that's a constant. That's truth. That's facts. No one can say, well, you know, that's your truth, but I think this is pink. You, don't say, you can't say that. The Crayola, whoever said this is the color, that's a truth. That's a fact. You cannot change that. But, but how many of us, well, cool, that's your truth. That's my truth. You do you. I do me. What is that? I don't understand that. Like we evolved these terms for it to fit my truth. What does that do? I have made God within myself. I have... I have, out of clay, I have created a new being, a new God for myself that fits my truth. You do you, I do me. That's not truth. <laughs> so the idea, my truth, that, that I don't know grammar, I know nothing, but to me, I don't understand how those two words now have become normal language. But if we just pause and think, the word truth, my, this is my outfit, cool, but not my truth. Like the two don't go together. Anyway, I'll get off my rant, but what artificial barrier? I cannot answer this question for you. I just highlighted three things that, that just that hit me. What artificial barrier do you put yourself, do you give yourself a justification, an excuse, and you put that artificial barrier that's preventing you from seeing the love of your heavenly father? What is that artificial barrier that's suppressing you? This woman clearly did. She wanted, she just jumped to a cultural norm. You shouldn't be talking to me. Don't you know, guy, girl, you're, you're, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. She put up those artificial barriers that prevented her. How did Jesus respond to that? He pushed past culture to make an impact on her. This is what made Jesus so attractive and so radical in the first century. It's because he did not just keep himself subjected to cultural restrictions, but he pushed past that, past language, past culture, past color, past race.
to make an impact, to bring the fullness of life. Jesus answered, Jesus answered and said to her, if you only knew the gift of God, and who is it who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, kind of weird. We're talking about water. And I, I just said you're just a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. All of a sudden you're getting like all spiritual on me, living water. What are you talking about? The woman responds. The woman said to Jesus, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Can you explain to me how are you getting that living water? Can you help me? Like maybe like I'm talking about water. Jacob, here's the well. Okay, H2O. You're talking about like living water. You don't have a pot. You got nothing. Can you explain to me what on earth are you talking about? She asks this question. Wait, you know, Jewish man, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? She asks a question, which then cracks that door open. Sometimes we run away from asking that question. Sometimes we feel like, ah, shouldn't we ask? I feel like I should know that answer. I shouldn't ask that question. What leads her to find healing and life is her asking a question. Like, you, you already know this, right? That's your teacher's elementary uh, school. There's no such thing as a dumb question, right? You're, so here, here she is. She's trying to find life, and she's asking a question. She's trying to connect the dots. She's like, wait, are you greater? Christians should be the most curious people on planet Earth. Christians should be the most curious people and the most open-minded people on planet Earth. Be curious to learn and, 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 and see how does this tap into the reality of truth. The one who says, I am the truth, not my truth. How does he, like, we should be the most curious people. Those who pursue Jesus, we should be the most open-minded and curious people because your Savior was. So she asked the question. She's beginning to open, she's opening that door. She's starting to put down that artificial barrier and entertaining a conversation by asking this question. Jesus answered, and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Here's this woman talking about water. Well, you got no pot. I don't know what you're talking about. This well is deep. She's talking very tangible, practical, literal, and then Jesus transcends that language talking about a different reality of saying, I'm here to give you living water. And actually, I want to put in you a fountain. I, I want water, this living water, to come from you. Here's a conversation of practical, tangible elements in which the Samaritan woman is talking, and then Jesus is transcending these elements to point to a higher reality. She's talking about something visible. He's talking about something invisible, transcending what is visible. What does that sound like? The sacramental reality of the church, the visible elements transcending to an invisible reality. There are visible elements in our first century church. Bread and wine. Bread, some guy just made it this morning. Wine, somebody got from Kroger. These are visible elements. But Jesus, through the intersection of the Holy Spirit on them, they transcend to become more than just visible elements. Connect the dots. Jesus kept on preaching this. He gave, gave everyone five, he gave them everyone fish sandwiches, and he would tell them, I'm, I'm here to give you this food, but I'm wanting to give you eternal nourishment. I'm wanting to give you divine nourishment. And they're like, 
yeah, sure, whatever, but when are we going to get another fish sandwich? He goes, no, I'm, I'm here to give you something more. He's trying to elevate and transcend these visible elements. This is why an integral part to the first century church is using visible elements to transcend into an invisible reality. This is why we use holy oil. This is why we use bread and wine. This is why we use water for baptism. I can go on and on. This is the, the foundation of the first century church. We have no explanation of how a bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Christ. That ain't our department. That ain't our department. But Jesus made it super clear that I take what is visible and tangible and I elevate that beyond your comprehension because I am above your comprehension. I have your entire life in the palm of my hand. This is the way I'm wanting to give you life. We say, yes, sir. We don't sit there and take a paper pen. Okay, let's figure this out. How does this bread and wine become here? The body and blood? Well, that's not our department. So Jesus is also trying to elevate her, trying to take her logic and transcend it to something which is beyond that. How does the woman respond? The woman, said, the woman said to him, Sir, give me of this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's starting to capture. He's like, you know what? I'm trying to quench my thirst with guys, with trying to be liked by so many other people. I'm trying to quench that thirst, but really, I'm quenching my thirst with sand. Maybe there is something more. Maybe I'm yearning for something more. Maybe all these things in the temporal world that I try to keep myself busy with is not really quenching my thirst. Maybe there is something more. You know what? Let me give it a shot. Give me some of that living water. This was her response. She came, she opened that door. She moved down that artificial barrier, and she opened that conversation. Sir, give me of this living water that I might not thirst again. How did Jesus respond? Okay, time out. Cool. I'll give you that living water. But do you mind doing me a favor? Can you go call your husband and come here? The God-man, being fully aware and transcending the dimension of time, knows already her life situation. And he shifts the conversation. Here, we're talking about water. Jesus is trying to push living water. And then she says, yeah, I want some of that living water. And all of a sudden, he shifts the conversation completely. Like, I'm sure when Jesus said, go call your husband, I'm sure she was like, what? We were just talking about living water. What, what does my husband have anything to do with this? What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing to this woman? He's calling her to a repentant life. Jesus is calling her, saying, I will give you living water. I want you to become a fountain of living water. Before we get there, we need to find closure on your struggle right now. I need you to come with a vulnerable heart, and I need you to lay that out. The only way for you to find healing is for you to come with your brokenness. The thing that you're trying to quench your thirst with, we need to deal with that before you become a living water. Before we can put on someone new, we need to make sure we take off the old person. So Jesus invites her to a very vulnerable question. Go call your husband and come here. How does she respond? She has every right to put up another artificial barrier. Oh, sorry, you know, it's getting kind of late, you know, Jesus, drink some water, you know, you can use my pot, I, I gotta head out. She could have easily cut the conversation. She could have easily put up that artificial barrier. She could have easily just looked at her watch, if they had watches back then, and just said, I gotta go, it's been nice. Like, she could have easily done that. She had every right. How did she respond? The woman answered and said, I have no husband. How does Jesus respond? You pathetic heretic, you will go into to the deepest pits of hell. How does Jesus respond to her? She comes with a broken heart. She comes with being real. Jesus said to her, you have well said. You have, you have perfectly answered me right and said you have no husband. 
The reality is you've had five husbands. And even the one you, you have now, he's not really your husband. You have spoken truly. You have taken a huge step toward healing by being honest with yourself and being honest with me. Now I'm here to give you life. You're not justifying your reason. You're not hiding behind your past. You're not giving yourself excuses. No, you're pushing past your past. You're coming and saying, I am broken. I am weak. I am sinful. But I don't want to be defined by that. And Jesus cheers her on. How many of us, when, when, when someone admits something wrong, what, what is our response? I told you, if you only listened to me a long time ago, you wouldn't be in the situation you're in. So next time you're going to listen to me, right? How do we respond when someone comes and apologizes? Do we beat them down even more? Parents, do we do that with our kids? When they say, I'm sorry, what do we say? I told you, next time you're going to listen to dad, right? Here Jesus says, I'm proud of you. You have a well said. You have spoken true. I love it. Now we're able to get somewhere. The woman said to him, she, now she, she feels elevated. She feels more confident because Jesus has met her where she is. Jesus has pushed past the cultural and gender barriers. She, now she feels more vulnerable and more open to find life in him. The woman said to him, sir, I, I'm, I'm starting to like, I'm starting to connect the dots. I'm starting to perceive that you are a prophet. I'm starting, to, I'm starting to connect the dots. You might be more than just a really good guy. You might be more than just a rabbi. You might be more than just a religious leader and you have all those 12 guys following you everywhere. You might be something more. You might be legit. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled what he talked, that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? And what, and what are you talking with her? Why are you talking with her? They're all thinking it, but no one wants to say, what is Jesus doing talking to a girl? What is he doing by himself? This is going to be the end of our ministry. Like, so many people, like, they're going to talk about us online. They could, they could have easily said all that. I want to highlight something. That Jesus, or sorry, the disciples, and who's writing this, by the way? John. John's writing this. John makes himself look bad. He's recording this. He makes himself, he's saying, I'm going to be real. I was biting my tongue. I really wanted to ask you know, why is Jesus talking to a girl? I wanted to ask this, but I just bit my tongue. He's making himself look bad in the story. Do you know what this, this literary element is called in writing? When the author makes himself look bad, again, I know nothing of English or grammar, it's the criteria of embarrassment. When an author makes himself look bad in the writing, it makes the writing more legitimate. Think about it. If you were John and you were going to write something that was going to last for generations to come until the end of time, wouldn't you want to make yourself look like the most awesome dude ever? Wouldn't you want to make yourself look awesome? Wouldn't you want to be, wouldn't you, if I was John, I would completely rewrite this. I would say, and I saw Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, and I said, good for you, Jesus, that, that, you know, that's good for you. You're doing the right thing. We should be, you know, breaking down barriers. I would have written that. But John makes himself look bad. This is called the criteria of embarrassment. This makes this record, this record of a first eyewitness recording the life of Jesus more legitimate because the author is making himself look bad. What did the woman do from this point? The woman then left her water pot. Water pot. That thing she was holding on to so tightly, the thing that like she just, that was her, that was her security blanket. She was hiding behind that. I don't want anyone to talk to me. Maybe if I just walk like this, everyone, hey, how you doing? Just kind of, you know, if I just walk like this and hold on to that water pot, maybe everyone would stay out of my business. No one would ask me any questions. And she held on to that. 
Have you ever been to like a, a big social gathering? You don't know anybody there, and you're just you're just holding on to that cup of coffee so tight. You're holding on to that paper, that pen. All right, what, what, what do we all do? Oh, sorry, I don't have my phone. You take out your phone and you just look at your phone, right? We hold on to that security blanket. We hold on to that thing so that way, like, we don't want to show that we're vulnerable. But she put that away. She put her old life away. She 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 dropped that water pot for her to move forward to the fullness of life. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Look at that humility. Could he be legit? Like, could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the anointed one? Could he be the fulfillment of everything we knew as Jewish people? Could he be it? Could he be legit? Then they went out of the city and came to him. This is just pure comedy. I'll just share this. This is not part of the message, but this is the Bible. Don't get me wrong. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Jesus, Rabbi, you got to eat. I'm sure you're hungry by now. You need to eat. So Middle Eastern. Like, they're so worried about Jesus being hungry, right? So Jesus, you need to eat. We want to make sure you eat. It's been a long day. We don't want you to faint. Jesus, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. It's like, you guys are so focused on what are we going for lunch? What are we having? You're so focused on the, on the temporal things. I'm trying to elevate you to be hungry about something so much more. Don't, don't, don't worry about that new restaurant. Don't worry about the food. We'll get to that. But they're so focused on feeding Jesus. I just find it like, it really shows the Middle Eastern part of like, they're always worried about what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? And making sure that Jesus is eating. They want to be polite to Jesus. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, guys, my food is not to do, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. <laughs> He's like, guys, stop worrying about the food. I'm, my, the food, what gives me nourishment, what feeds me is for me to do the will of my dad. And I want you to do the will of my dad. I want you to follow me. I want you to become the hands and feet of me. I want you to follow my lead on this. Don't, don't, don't stop worrying about the food. Come on, you saw what I did last week with the five loaves and two fish, so chill. If I'm hungry, I can create food. So stop worrying about the food. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word the woman, because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, now we believe that Jesus, you are God. Not because of what you said. But we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. No one will become a follower of Jesus through the words that you and I say. No one's going to attend the aid and be like, I'm a follower of Jesus because of the aid. No one says that. And no one, our words will not lead someone to immediately follow Jesus. It's them experiencing the love of their father. You, can, you and I can plant a seed by sharing our story. We say, you know what? I used to be really dumb and make poor life decisions. But then I noticed my life changed. How, like, I, I noticed my marriage was different. Like, my kids were different once I started to pursue who Jesus is. And, and like, that's my story. This is what brings change. The Samaritan woman didn't say, guys, 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 like, I, you, sit down, we're about to have a Bible study. No, she said, I want you to come and see a guy who told me everything that I ever did. Talk about humility. Like, this was her testimony. This is her story. That she put down that barrier, and she's coming saying, let me just be real. I made tons of dumb mistakes. Actually, six guys worth of dumb mistakes. But I'm not defined by them. And I want to show you how I find life, how, how I found life in him, in God, and how he 
looked past my sins and says, you are valued, that I am loved. He told me how much I am valued by him, by his words, by his touch. You got to check him out. And this is the response. The, the city of Samaria, Samaria, which you see in the background of this icon, they weren't touched by her preaching. That planted a seed. But they said, man, we're all in. Not because of what you said, but because of what we experienced with Jesus. Your Orthodox trivia question. Does anybody know her name? Her, her Orthodox saint name. She, and her, sorry, I should say this. Her story is that she ended up becoming a saint in the church. Anybody know her name? Saint Fotini. Very good. Fotini. So the name Fotini means uh, light. She, she became the enlightened one. Or she became the enlightened one. So this is her church uh, here in Israel. Uh, again, here, here's a stud right here. I, I, I hired a model. Yeah. The first picture, no reaction, all of a sudden I show this. And I hired a model. I asked him if he could take a picture for me. For the, that's me, by the way. It's not a model. Anyway. <laughs> by the way, this is her church. This is called St. Fotini Church. And this is part of her, her skull, by the way. This is her relic. So they, they, we venerate her as a saint, and this is her church um, till now. Jesus put her in touch with her genuine thirst. Let me just, that's enough of that picture. She was thirsting for something. You and I thirst for something. And we feel that next job maybe quench my thirst. That getting enough followers online might give me, that person might help me quench my thirst. And we try to quench that thirst with lust, drugs, alcohol, you name it. We try to quench that thirst by so many other things, maybe just scrolling away until we're numb. What is that thing that we try to, we just get lost in, to feel numb, and we think that's going to quench our thirst? But Jesus put her in touch with her genuine thirst. We try to fill that thirst in us. It's equivalent to drinking sand. It only makes it worse. But Jesus came to meet her where she is. She put down that barrier, and she embraced the love of her father. And this is why we talk about her till now. What can bring change to you and me? And for us to drop our water pot, and for us to meet our Savior, might require us to assess, what is that barrier that I'm putting? What's that excuse that I give myself that's blocking me from embracing his unconditional love for me? I cannot answer that question for you. That thing that you do that's quenching your thirst, I cannot answer that question for you. But I can share with you what will ultimately quench your thirst, which is the one who says, I'm here to make you a fountain of living water. This is where we find life in him. And for us to take that step, it might require us to come to him with a vulnerable heart, with a broken heart, and say, yeah, I have sinned. I don't have it all together. I am struggling. This is where your Savior will respond to you and says, you have well said. I'm here to give you life. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we hold on to so many things in this world that we want that thing to define us, to give us value, to give us worth. 
to portray ourselves in a certain way to others. But Lord, all of that is just an artificial barrier that we create for ourselves. But the deepest part of who we are wants to be known by you, wants to experience that intimacy with you, wanting to experience that love which transcends everything of this temporal world. Lord, I pray that we can learn from this Samaritan woman, San Fotini, that we can follow her lead, that she came with a barrier, then asked one question after another that led her to embracing your love. Lord, we thank you for, for St. John recording this dialogue, capturing all these details that are there to give us life centuries later. Lord, we pray that we can come to you in the same way she did. Through the prayers of St. Fotini and all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you guys. We will continue the series next week.